and uh, I, I really wanted to get some uh, some insights from you on this topic, uh, which I'm just calling for now you know, exit strategies. Well, let's let's uh, let's start kind of with my first question, and we'll just see where, where our conversation goes. So, looking at the at the landscape today, uh, and I'm looking at really the the solo practitioner, or maybe a soloist with an associate. Maybe he's sold a fractional interest, and maybe he has a a partner. But you know, one or two doctors. Um, what the landscape today, who are, how would you identify the buyers? Who are the buyers for that particular segment? And I know there's a lot of other variables, but, but take it from there and we can, we can build, build a framework from that. Sure. I mean, I'd say 90, 95% of the buyers that I see are the uh, docs that have been out of school, probably three, four, five years that are looking to become owners. Right. Um, and, and so, so would you say, um, so, so how much has the, how much has the debt, bubble uh, caused that that group of buyers to shrink at all. We, we have a lot more dentists graduating, so that increases the pool to some degree, right? Right. But then we've got the debt. So, so how, do, how do those things balance out if they do it all? You know, I got to tell you, um, a lot of these buyers that I represent, they have a lot of debt, as you uh, just alluded to, three, four, sometimes $500,000. That doesn't seem to slow them down, doesn't seem to shrink the pool at all. Uh, and fact, um, you know, in some of the um, forums that we participate with, uh, my forums, basically Dental Town, but, you know, one of the things that, that we kind of coach these buyers on is, is sometimes the quickest way out of debt is to become an owner. Yeah. Yeah, no, I 100% I agree. Do you, do you see uh, amongst this group of, of buyers three to five years out of school uh, with, with whatever relevant amount, relevant amount of debt they have, do you see... Um, do you see any disparity? Are there, are there segments of this group? We're calling them kind of millennials just in, in general, but uh, there certainly seems like that group that's, that's growing up and graduating from school today, in all respects, there's a good number of them that look out at life today differently than maybe my generation did. Um, and they're trying to get more of that quote balance. So, so it is, obviously in any group, we can't overgeneralize. There's a segment out of any group that's gonna be uh, industrious and, and not, not going into life to be average. And, and they definitely have ownership pathway on, them, on their mind. There's gotta be another group that's somewhere that I don't know. Do you, do you counsel some of those that you know, don't know? And if they don't know, what do you tell them? Maybe they shouldn't do it right away. I mean, how do you, how do you help? Yeah, no. Um that's a great question. And sometimes we do get those buyers that maybe they, they found a practice that they're interested in. Um, and even before we get to the point of looking at that practice and, and looking at the financials and the due diligence and everything else, what I try to do at least with my buyers is ascertain whether I think they're even prepared to get into running a business. Cause that's what it is. It's running a business. And, and sometimes just having that discussion, talking about the risks, talking about, everything that's involved with, with owning a business, owning a dental practice outside of the clinical side of dentistry, um, sometimes they become to realize that, you know, maybe they're not quite ready yet and they got to get educated on the business side more. Yeah, yeah, good, good points. So, so banks are, as you said, are, are willing to lend um, to, to those who even have debt today, but there's, there's got to be kind of a um, a practice value that fits that box. When, if you get uh, to a, a, a revenue size, a practice value size above a certain number, and I don't know what that is. You probably know better than I do, but I'm guessing it's approaching a million dollars or more. Uh, what do you, where the banks say, you know, for a single buyer with, you know, three to five years of quote experience and still with some amount of debt, we're not going to go above that. Is it, so is there, is there kind of a box that you see that that, that kind of fits better? 
Yeah, you know what? And um, I would say maybe three, four years ago and beyond, I think there was that limit for banks. But with many more banks joining the party and lending to these buyers, it's really, um, you know, that limit is kind of gone by the wayside with some of the more aggressive banks. You know, there are banks like Lendever, um, you know, they've come to the game over the last three to five years. And quite frankly, I, I think it's making uh, uh, some of the other um, um, lenders like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, become more competitive and, you know, basically put that million dollar collection limit aside and say, look, if the numbers make sense, if you're looking at a $2 million practice and, you know, you got an associate that's going to be staying there, whatever the reason is, we're still going to lend you 100% of, of the value if it makes sense. Um, and we may not ask, you know, the seller to, to, to take back any notes. Um, I'm seeing more lenders ready to lend, you know, 1.5 to, I just did a deal probably six months ago here in the Northern Virginia area where the uh, practice was doing about 3.5 million solo buyer mm. bought it uh, and the bank was willing to lend them $2.8 million. Solo buyer, uh, million. solo buyer had, had some pretty good experience. I mean, uh, they right did, yeah. you know, I would, I, I, yeah. I call them in terms of their ability to produce. Yes. They were up there. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, the seller was willing to stick around for a couple of years. That certainly helped. Right. Um, but here's a buyer that's been out for probably at least five, six, seven years, had a lot of training, you know, doing their own implants, short-term ortho, you know, all those things. So they were, you know, they were um, capable themselves of producing dentistry of at least 1.5 million. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's less about the lenders and you know, again, it's, it's getting back and knowing the buyer. And what I try to do is find out from the buyer, what have they been producing? What are, what are they capable of producing? And if they're capable of producing six, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars $900,000, which I think is probably more typical, I don't want to say that's the average, but it's, it's more typical, then I think they're capable of buying that million, $1.2 million practice. Um, and, and so that's the size of practice in terms of revenue that they should probably be looking for instead of the four or five or $600,000 practice, but you don't overlook them in case 300,000 of that is hygiene. Yeah, sure. Certainly. Certainly. So with a, with a combination of a, of a couple of events that we've already mentioned here, uh, we've got, uh, very low interest rates today, uh, historically low, and, and it looks like they're, they're going lower uh, as the Federal yes, Reserve looks at, you know, uh, we've got that. We have uh, more aggressive lending. You just mentioned that. Uh, the banks are more aggressive today. And then we also have the, uh, the DSOs bringing a lot of liquidity to the marketplace. So all combination of those things to me have certainly elevated uh, the price values, the price points of practices across the board. And I'm sure you see the same thing in the last, whatever, five, six years, it just continued to, to elevate. What factors do you foresee that could change that? I mean, we could say, well, yeah, if interest rates, you know, took a big jump, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, uh, but, but a recession where, where credit uh, constricts again, I mean, that could. Uh, the DSOs, the corporate buyers, um, is there a point that you see where maybe they're not as interested as buying existing practices and they do more de novo? What, could, what, what dynamics do you think could change? And do you think when those dynamics change, 
Do you think there will be a gradual decrease in practice values, if at all, or do you think it's sharp? I'm just, I know it's crystal balling, yeah. but you know. <laughs> you know, look, I think, I guess in my world, I think the biggest thing that might drive down practice values is if the demand goes down. Um, so for whatever reason, again, if, you know, there's, there's a train of thought that with the DSOs entering the picture over the last five, 10 years, what have you, um, that certainly has helped increase the buyer pool. Because again, you've got a lot of these dentists that have graduated, they're out two, three, four, five years, they're ready to become owners. Um, but now you have DSOs fighting for the same practices. And quite frankly, the DSOs with deeper pockets are willing to pay more uh, in a lot of cases. And I think that's driving the prices up. So if for some reason, the DSOs stop buying, uh, they become uh, less aggressive and they begin to pull out of the market. Maybe it's because of government regulation or whatever, but if, if, if that happens, I can see where the practice values are gonna start to drop back down again because the, the, the buyer pool that's left, they're gonna be the solo doctors. Yeah. Are, do you, are you, do you have insight? Do you believe that the DSOs today, again, I'm generalizing, but, um, are they, are they profitable? Uh, it seems like you know they, the the growth is by acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. Are they? Do you see that? Do you see any problem with sustainability of, of that um, of, of that that model, Tim? I mean, as of now, I do, uh, and I say that because while I think the, I think the common thought is that when a DSO is going to buy your practice, typically they're going to jump into every PPO HMO that's out there. They're, they're, they're maybe looking for um, quantity over quality in terms of, of the patient base. But I think at the end of the day, in general, dentists as a group have done such a, a better job of maintaining a distance from the insurers. Unlike the medical professionals back in the 70s and the 80s that just jumped in, you know, hook, line, sinker. Um, and I think because of that, um, I think the, 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 the DS, even the DSO model is going to remain profitable for the foreseeable future unless, again, government regulation comes in, uh, you know, Obamacare type legislation, something like that, that's going to drive, um, you know, the, the profitability of a dental practice south. Tim, uh, a lot of the DSOs and some of the um, people that are, you know, aggregating, uh, trying to aggregate practices on maybe more of a private basis, but still maybe a corporate model. Um, I see, and I know you see that a lot of the contracts, the agreements are promising to the sellers of practices, hey, come on with us, sign up with us, and uh, we'll, we'll, ex we'll help you exit. And we'll pay you a seven or eight times EBITDA. Um, is, in your in your experience and what you see, is that happening? Do you think there's some issues with that? Uh, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I sort of do, but, but what are your thoughts? I mean, look, it is, it is happening. Uh, and again, I think it depends on the seller and where they're at in their life. What I mean by that is, is if you're a seller that's in their mid to late sixties, for example, and, and, and you're really ready to retire, semi-retire, scale back, whatever, um, then, in the, the DSO, the DSO model um, works for those larger practices. Um, and, you know, if you're a younger seller, meaning you're in your 40s or 50s and uh, you've, you've, um, 
you followed Dr. Phelps and their uh, Freedom Founders and you're ready to retire, you know, they're probably more willing to work three, four, five years and willing to work for less because they got their payment on their practice up front. Yeah. You know, and, and so I think it's really driven by the type of seller you are. And, you know, I see no sellers that are in their 40s, early 50s that really do want to work clinically, but they're ready just to say, hey, let me cash in my chips. I know I'm going to get paid less, maybe a little bit less than what I'm pulling down from the practice. And that's okay with me. If I get the itch to, to rebuild something, I'll just move to a different, you know, state, a different county, wherever, do it all over again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Um, when the DSOs are, are buying practices, uh, there's typically an additional earnout or a, you know a contractual lockup. But they want they want to keep the doctor in place, obviously for for, for reasons two, three, maybe up to five years. Um, is it when when you're, when you're counseling some of your clients about looking at that? Um, again, I'm sure it depends upon the individual doctor uh, how how resilient, how willing they are to adapt to a new culture and take over. Uh, but do you? Do you find any that, that have done gone down that road and wish, you know, in retrospect, they hadn't done that, um, that hadn't, hadn't stayed on in a new culture with a new owner? Is that is that hard for most, or do you, do you see a, a blend? You know, good question. I guess the ones that I've dealt with that have sold to DSOs, um, they're glad they did it. Uh, they're older in age, so they were ready. Um, I haven't had the younger doctor that um, has sold to a DSO and after two, three or four years has thought, you know what, I probably shouldn't have done that. I, I just haven't seen that yet. Certainly haven't seen it with the older seller clients that I've represented. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, ADA stats are showing that the quote average retirement age, and again, uh, you know, how, how they've come up with the date, you know, where I'm, where I'm going with right. this. It's increasing. So again, there's a lot of things we don't know about that survey. Uh, just what, sure. what are your what are your thoughts about that? Look, I think um, I think quite frankly, um, when I think about when my dad retired in 1986, he was 56 years old, which happens to be my age today. But when when he retired, it was cold turkey. He picked a date. He retired. That was it. What, 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 was his, what was his career in, Tim? Uh, he was in mechanical engineering, worked for the uh, Bell Systems. Um, and his last, you know, after they broke up in, in the early to mid-80s, you're probably aware of that. I think he wound up with um, AT&T. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so long story short is I, I, think, I think more people today are choosing not to retire cold turkey. They're, they're, they're cutting back. And so this ADA stat that more people are retiring at a later age, maybe that's when they fully retire. I'm just guessing um, because more of my clients, when they decide to sell, if, this, if the buyer doesn't want to uh, hire them back, maybe the practice is too small or, or for whatever reason, or maybe they, they move away from where they sold their practice, they're looking for other opportunities just to keep their hands on the clinical side. And so they are working until the late 60s, early 70s, even if it's a couple of days a week. Yeah. I'm more of that. People are semi-retiring, not fully retiring. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, where, do, where do you, well, let, let's define for me, if, if you can, in, in the way you look at it, what, what are the current models of, of dentistry today? And I'm kind of looking at 
uh, defining maybe you know fee for service slash boutique. If if, if we if we can combine it that way, uh, we could have a fee for service uh, hybrid model with select PPOs, and we could have maybe practices that are just high efficiency, more business models that are full PPO or even Medicaid. That's just my kind of general framework. What what, mm -hmm. what, what what's your framework of, of, of practice models that, that you deal with today? Yeah, so I think the best way for me to answer that is to think about my ongoing CPA client base. Those, those clients that I service from a CPA pers perspective on an ongoing basis, I'd say, again, the typical dental practice is a mix of PPO fee for service. And if I had to guess, I'd say it's more like 60-40, 60% PPO, 40% fee for service. That said, um, the second model that you alluded to, which is where people are being more selective on the PPOs. So they may participate with one, two, or three PPOs that have the higher reimbursements, but if they were participating with six PPOs three, four, five, six years ago, they've started to cut out of those, uh, implement these membership plans, which I think is a great idea, and it gives them a way to maybe maintain or retain some of those PPO patients uh, as non-participation type patients uh, under their membership plan. And I'm seeing more of that over the last probably three to four years. And like I said earlier, I, I, that's why I think the, the dentists as a whole, as a group, have done a pretty good job of keeping a safe distance from the insurers. You know, I, I've, I've been out of practice ownership for, for 10 years, so my relevance uh, is really through forums, uh, like we're both on. And just, but you know, I, and again, this may just be that people are feeling exasperated and they want a, a place to, to vent, but it, you know, what we hear all the time is, is just insurance is just driving our, my, our colleagues crazy. Um, it's the business part, but it's not a fun part. Um, and it seems like insurance is just clawing deeper and deeper into denials and, 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 and slow payments and driving the reimbursements down. Where, where does this stop? <laughs> does it? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't think it ever stops. Um, but I think, again, if, if the dentist can keep a safe distance from the number of PPOs they participate with, then they're less likely to have those issues on a daily basis. So the less interaction you can have with the insurers, the less of those examples we're going to see and we're going to, you know, hear about. So, so I'm just curious as a follow-up to that, again, because I know you deal with so many dental clients in, in, in the, the models that we just talked about, a mix of PPO fee-for-service. Um, do you find that by convincing or, or getting your clients to reduce reliance on insurance as they can, as they're building the business and developing better leadership and all the things we know that go to that. Obviously you, you see that their numbers are profitability, which is the, which is the name of the game here. It's got to mm -hmm. go up every time, um, virtually every time. If they're doing the other things right, uh, correct? Right, correct, correct. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's keeping the higher reimbursement PPOs, dropping the lower ones. Even if you're seeing less patients, um, and even if you're making the same amount of money, I've certainly seen my share of those clients that have not um, made more money, but maybe they've been able to cut back a half day a week. So it's better quality of life for the same, which means you're making more, in my opinion. Um, you know, your life's fuller, your life's richer, and sometimes that's what it's about. Uh, I 100% agree, 100% <laughs> agree. 
Um, the, the, the sale of a practice uh, through selling fractional interests, uh, bringing on an associate, a trial partner, and maybe a sale a third, maybe a sale a half. Um, how much of, of, of what you see um, is, is, is that model being used for an exit strategy? Yeah, great question. And, and I, I thought about that because, again, I remember 30 years ago, back in the 80s, when that was the primary model. When, whenever you had a client that came to you and said, you know, I, I, I think I want to retire in five years, then the model used to be, okay, let's go out and find an associate, have them work one, two or three days a week. And then as you begin to cut back, they'll add more. And, you know, if you have that associate that's been there for a couple of years, there's your, there's your exit. Yeah. That's going to become the next owner of the practice. Whereas today, because there's just so many more buyers, so many more buyers, the pool is just larger. You know, sellers are less likely to go down that road by hiring an associate and dealing with that uh, management of that associate issue for X number of years. They'd rather work for another three, four, five years and then put the practice up for sale. So I think the model you see more so today is when somebody's ready to sell the practice, they're ready to sell 100% of it. I don't see the percentage practice sales unless it's a larger multi-doctor, multi-owner type practice that's selling an interest. There's already three partners. One partner wants to retire. So you're going to have a buyer come in and buy that one-third interest in that practice. And that's, and that's kind of, that's, that's hard to do. It's, it's, it's hard to find the right, right person to come in and take that, take that place. It's just, there's just too many variables, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to do unless it's a three-owner practice, but they have four or five or six doctors. And again, that means you have three non-owner doctors that have been associates, and they're ready to step up to the plate and own part of the practice that they've been working in. Yeah, yeah. So those, and, and, and those practices are still out there, um, but they are becoming um, rarer. Okay. The, the, the competition for finding uh, and, and providing finding associates today in, in practice where, where maybe someone wants to just bring an associate in or maybe they want to try the transition model. The, the competition for those younger dentists is fierce today because the corporate side is able to offer them uh, guarantees and, and income uh, and, and other benefits that the typical solo doc owner can't can or doesn't know how to offer or, or many times hasn't even built a practice up to accommodate another dentist. They, they try to do it, you know, before. Um, right. Is, is, would you see that is, 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 is one of the issues in that what are the other issues in that fractional sale model? You know, it's, it's interesting. I hear that argument a lot that DSOs have better benefits um, when you are a young doctor coming out of school um, and looking for your first job. But again, time after time, what I see, again, with my clients, especially those owners that need a, a doctor working two or three days a week, while they may not be able to have uh, the same benefits that a DSO has or may not be able to provide them, um, when you're talking about the compensation that they're going to get on their collections or their adjusted production, typically the solo doc practice is going to pay a higher percentage, anywhere from 30 to 35%, which a DSO is not going to pay. The DSO is going to pay that young associate doctor maybe 25 27%. They're going to get their benefits on top of that, no question about it. But when you look at the compensation package from the DSO and compare it to the 30 or 35 percent that a that a private practice is going to pay, if it's not comparable, maybe maybe the private practice is going to be a little bit richer simply because you have 
one doctor that's looking to buy back some of their time to spend with their family and is willing to pay a little bit more to have that coverage. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. Uh, so, so last, last, last um, question, if you will, and it's really just open-ended. Is there anything uh, on this subject of current and future practice exit models that you feel like we haven't covered um, or, or any additional word of advice if we were giving it to those who are in that position today or looking uh, out next year to anything else we've we've kind of left out of the conversation Tim sure um, let me start off by asking you a question um, sure. were were you investing in real estate back in the mid 80s early to mid 80s yes okay so going back a couple minutes when we talked about you know if, if anything's going to drive down practice values uh, what could that be and I said it might be government regulation legislation so uh, you're very familiar with the tax law changes back in 86. Yes, indeed. Put in the, the, the passive loss rules, and then you saw what happened in the real estate market and real estate values. That yes. legislation alone depressed real estate. Um, and so that's what I was kind of getting to as, you know, what could potentially impact practice values. Um, and barring that, I just, you know, um, I just don't see that as an issue, at least in the next five to 10 years that, that I might be working. And, and when we talk about regulation and certainly, yeah, the TRA uh, uh, Reform Act of 86, that was, that was huge, that was massive, as you, as you said. What, what, what type of regulation do you, do you think is possible? Uh, knowing <laughs> knowing <laughs> where, 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 where healthcare, as you said, Obamacare, and where, where, where we're driving uh, and, and where, where you know medicine and dentists and anybody who's got doctor or degrees initials as a name or the evil capitalist, you know, it's kind of that, that whole thing, and they're making right. too much money. What, what, so what, what, what do you what do you what, just if you had to throw throw something at the wall? What do you think you know, could could be mandated at some point? Uh, you know that that would greatly affect affect that. What do you what do you think? <laughs> well, first, I think I think the the, the chances of it happening might be. Um, as great as the chances of us ever seeing a, a flat tax here in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think there's a possibility, um, but you know, will it be in my lifetime? Maybe. Um, you know, again, what that's going to be? Again, it's 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 probably going to wind up being some form of healthcare legislation um, that's going to wrap, you know, the dental around medical around everything healthcare. Maybe it's you know the Canadian model where it's government driven, but I, I think that's the type of legislation that would that would impact dental practice values. Do I see that happening? Again, probably as likely as us seeing a, a flat tax anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, good points, good points. All right, well, listen, I'm not gonna take any more of your time. This was really, really helpful, very valuable. This was fun and thanks for the invitation, Dr. Phelps. <laughs> Tim, take care, all, all right. right. Take care, bye-bye. Bye-bye.